This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. If you have to take immunosuppressive treatment, this also has unintended consequences for patients in terms of uh, vaccinations and the efficacy of vaccinations in terms of um, having more infections because you 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 may uh, you basically reduce the response to infections by the body if you have an immunosuppressive drug um, or by for example having virus reactivations and, and certainly with with some of the immunosuppressive treatments you you have had some of this so by not having any a a an effect on the immune system we really thought that would also enable patients to live to live without these consequences that immunosuppressive therapies have. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, presented by Tissue Cipher from Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. My guest today is Dr. Andreas Mueller, who is Chief Medical Officer at Immunic, which is developing a clinical pipeline of orally administered small molecule therapies for chronic inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. At the United uh, European Gastroenterology Week a few months ago, Immunic presented uh, research on a new approach to treating celiac disease. Uh, I'm excited to speak to Dr. Mueller about how this could change the way we treat our patients living with celiac. Dr. Mueller, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Dr. Weinstein, thank you very much for having me. I'm, it's a pleasure for me to talk about uh, this research that we conducted and reported. Uh, it's great. Um, I'd like to get started. Just uh, you know, a little know a little bit about you, um, your background. Uh, how did you get interested in medical technology in this field? Yeah, that's probably a, a broadcast by itself. But uh, to make it short, I think I was uh, always, even as a as a child, interested in science, and uh, decided to go to medical school with the intent of really being a physician scientist, more or less, and not a clinical physician. Um, I, I love medicine, and I'm happy I did this. But I, I think for me it was always clear that I would end up trying to invent something or being involved in new technology rather than being a clinical physician. And over time, I learned actually that I'm not smart enough to be the inventor. I'm more or less the um, developer of and, com and combining um, with really smart people who invent things and help them to translate this into clinical medicine. It certainly takes a village to uh, bring something from idea to testing to treatment. Uh, how, long, how long ago did the work uh, get started with the current uh, program treating people with celiac? Yes, the, this, was, this usually takes a while. And it actually started in a lab in Japan um, that did research in exploring new targets by a different company, by a different pharmaceutical company who had set up this lab to kind of explore different targets. And they had a different goal that was uh, for, for exploring these new targets. But they realized when they explored this, this probably five, six years ago, that when they knocked out this target, they were uh, causing a different behavior of models of gastrointestinal disease. Actually, they were unable to induce certain models of gastrointestinal disease, so it prevented 
that gastrointestinal disease in animals. And they explored it further and found out this target, CERT6, uh, and also um, then learned how to um, develop drugs that, that basically modulate the CERT6 target. And we came in when this company was, was looking for somebody who, who would take over and develop this. And this is when we took it over about three years ago. So they developed a, a, a animal model where they were able to induce uh, inflammatory changes in the gut and then tried to figure out what was happening during the inflammatory changes. Is that more or less? No, I, I think it was actually a little bit different. It was that they tried to induce animal models that, that are commonly used in animal research that, that mimic, I think, more or less ulcerative colitis, so a disease of the colon. And they when they knocked out or manipulated this target, they found out that they couldn't induce that. It prevented the development of that model so that they couldn't induce kind of the equivalent of the ulcerative colitis in these animals. And that uh, they explored then further how this happened. Yes, and that led to the discovery that third six is involved in, uh, it is it, basically the epigenetic trigger for the physiological regeneration of the bowel and and by targeting this you you um you prevent that uh, from from happen that disease from happening at least in this in this animal model yeah well i have obviously over my career have had many patients with celiac disease although wasn't probably able to clearly identify them and also patients with chronic gastrointestinal symptoms described as irritable bowel syndrome or leaky gut or other combinations of of symptoms, uh, Immunix's new approach uh, to a treatment entails restoring a healthy gut wall, modulating this CERT6, um, as you said, a stress-responsive protein that maybe helps repair our cells. Uh, tell me about the research you presented at the United uh, European Gastroenterology Week. Yes, so this was... Um our report where we were reporting about what's called a phase one trial, which is usually the kind of the first trial that you do with your drug uh, in in humans. So it's a first in human trial. And usually this involves healthy volunteers that get single doses or multiple doses of your drug. So we also presented at UEGW a few months ago a uh, the third part where we actually used our drug for the first time in patients with celiac disease. And we used celiac disease. And, and first of all, uh, Dr. Weinstein, I think I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. You, you saw different patients um, that were probably this kind of regeneration of bowel uh, epithelium is important. Um, and we also had the same idea that we had to think about if we want to use it first in patients, what's a good disease to show that the drug really works and the mechanism really works. And we could have gone into irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease or, or some other disease, but we, we chose celiac disease for two reasons. First of all, it presented a way of doing it in a relatively short clinical trial in 28 days because for celiac disease, you know the autoantigen. Yes, you know gluten is the autoantigen. You can more or less induce disease by giving patients gluten. Um, and But also we realized that, you know, patients with celiac disease, they don't have a, 
any treatment options beyond gluten-free diet at the moment. And, and therefore, I think it would be really cool for us to, you know, have a drug that maybe does something for patients that really don't have a, um, a therapeutic option so, uh, right now. So in at UGW, we presented for the first time really publicly the results from this testing of our drug in celiac disease patients for the first time at all. Well, it's, um, it's certainly a, a, a group of patients that, as you said, uh, they can get sick pretty quickly because they all they got to do is uh, not follow their diet. Um, and this treatment, explain to me, the treatment works locally and it's not immunosuppressive. Um, usually when we think of inflammation uh, conditions, autoimmune conditions, we're most uh, I think most treatments talk about turning off the immune system. How does how does the new treatment work? Yes, and so this is also why we really like this mechanism of action, like this drug candidate here, is that it does not influence the immune system, um, and it has two parts to it. I think that's important. Why not doing anything to the immune system is, to my mind, important. One thing is, of course, is that. Um, Celiac disease is a lifelong disease, so you would have to take a treatment, a potential treatment for the rest of your life. And we know this from other chronic diseases, even for example, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, where if you have to take immunosuppressive treatment, this also has unintended consequences for patients in terms of um, vaccinations and the efficacy of vaccinations, in terms of um, having more infections because you're, you're, you're may, uh, you basically reduce the response to infections by the body if you have an immunosuppressive drug um, or by, for example, having virus reactivations. And, and certainly with with some of the immunosuppressive treatments, you, you have had some of this. So by not having any, a, a, an effect on the immune system, we really thought that would also enable patients to live, to live without these consequences that immunosuppressive therapies have. But the other consequences by not really addressing the immune system is that Yes, celiac is a serious autoimmune disease. This is not a gluten um, intolerance. This is really a the immune system being turned on by gluten or uh, some breakdown product of gluten and has an autoimmune disease. Um, and of course, you can think of it if we, if we, if we allow no, the gluten not to get into the, the bowel wall by repairing the bowel wall, um, we still, of course, influence celiac disease. But on the other hand, um, it it works on repairing the bowel wall in, 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 in celiac disease, even when a patient is following strict gluten-free diet, so you don't have a reactivation. But there's a lot of patients, about 40 to 50% of patients with celiac disease, they follow strict gluten-free diet and still have um, what's called villus atrophy. So the, the the bowel architecture is damaged and, and is is not healing. So here we hope that we can, by not addressing the immune uh, mechanism of celiac disease, but addressing the 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 architecture problem in uh, in in celiac disease, that we can help patients that really follow strict gluten-free diet, but don't achieve healing of their, of their bowel wall. I think I see a lot of patients who have 
variable symptoms, and I, I guess I assume that they have variable amounts of inflammation in their in their in small intestinal wall. Um, if we're if we're looking for patients who might benefit, uh, you have any suggestions? Should everybody be screened? Should we try and identify anybody who has risk, or do we wait for the symptoms to start? So I, I think uh, in a lot of ways. Um, the FDA put out guidelines and we actually would agree with these guidelines that this is the best way to probably use a treatment in, in celiac disease patients is to to look for patients who despite gluten-free diet um, uh, still have symptoms or have um, the signs and symptoms of villus atrophy so this this bowel wall um, uh, is, is um, damaged damage of the bowel wall and the that, that usually I think in celiac disease you 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 do a biopsy to stage the disease because it, it I think it it makes a lot of sense to look in terms of the what the bowel architecture is because the bowel architecture especially in the duodenum handles so much of the absorption of nutrients and important um, things like vitamins uh, um, that are important uh, for, for the body and also this this malnutrition malabsorption um, is leading to the um, to the complications of, of celiac disease. So here, I think it could be symptoms and or signs of malabsorption, malnutrition that really leads you to believe that these patients need to be treated. And uh, that's also what the FDA wants us to focus on. And that's what we're going to focus on future clinical trials. So, so the FDA is really focusing more on symptoms um, and more actually more severe clinical uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. Now we tend to uh, follow a lot of laboratory studies, um, you know, uh, uh, IgG and um, a- antibodies. Um, do you think they will have much use uh, in managing patients using the medication? So I, I think for the, it's it's different. I think if you want to establish a diagnosis of celiac disease. I think there's a lot of laboratory tests now available, uh, like TG2 antibodies that that you would screen for. There's only two HLA types basically that that would lead to uh, celiac disease. So there are a lot of ways that we use this for um, um, for diagnosis. I think for in terms of treatment, I think it's driven more by probably biopsy and what the what the status of your bowel wall is and and your villus atrophy what your villus atrophy is um, and and the symptoms and then probably in terms of laboratory tests more you look at malnutrition malabsorption markers because of course uh, celiac disease for example um, has problems then with iron uptake vitamin b12 uptake zinc uptake that really leads to for example anemia or to or the osteoporosis and and these malnutrition markers you can easily assess in clinical practice as well to kind of stage the disease beyond histology. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things we see are patients who who believe that they're following a strict diet um, and want to know if they're being successful because their symptoms are, they still have some symptoms but they believe that they're following a strict diet. And uh, sometimes hard to uh, monitor laboratory studies because they're not anemic; they're they're doing okay. Um, the um, the 
the lab tests may not be helpful. You know, we have patients who have IgA deficiency, and mm. so you can't you can't measure the the some of the antibodies. Um, do you think this will uh, help patients maybe cheat a little bit? You know, not have to be so strict. I mean, they'll be able to get by going to restaurants and just sort of trying to avoid, you know, major sources of gluten. So I, I don't think that uh, the FDA would allow us to do anything to to enable patient cheating. However, I think if you talk to the patient organization and to talk to patients, they they always say. In principle, there is no gluten-free diet. It can't be achieved. And the reason is that gluten is so universally present, even in things that where we don't suspect it, or um, cosmetics. Um, uh, it, it's it's and very small impurities of gluten in these products and, and uh, it, it will basically cause the disease. So even if the patient follows a gluten-free diet, according to what whatever the label is for example or what you should assume is is in this is in this food or or um, in, in other things that they they use or have have contact with they will still have some sort of gluten exposure and then this leads to the what's what's called basically unintended or uh, gluten exposure that will maintain the disease uh, and and doesn't heal you and that's something where probably these drugs could be or these therapies could be used for to basically um, allow patients to um, deal with that unintended gluten exposure that you can't avoid um, even if you are completely strict and you don't cheat um, and, and that's something that is a problem for patients because um, if you still have some sort of even lowest level gluten exposure there is the suspicion that it will maintain the disease, it will maintain the villus atrophy, and uh, uh, there's nothing you can do because you can't really have a gluten-free diet. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, definitely will impact the way we treat patients with celiac disease, particularly those, as you say, um, they're following the strict diet. They, are they still getting small exposures or if they're persistently having symptoms, do they have irritable bowel and celiac disease? Um, you know, can you eliminate celiac disease as uh, the micro exposures to, to gluten uh, with the, using this medication? And then if they're still having issues, you say, okay, now maybe you have some irritable bowel component uh, of your symptoms. You don't have to worry that you are um, being exposed and blame the restaurant or blame, blame your spouse for the way that they're cooking, things like that. You, you know, we've, we've, we've eliminated that. That will be very important, I think, in treating patients who have these persistent mild symptoms uh, with, with celiac. I, I agree, and I think the uh, and, and Dr. Einstein, you, you're absolutely correct. I think we hear from the physicians and the, the celiac expert that we're working with that it's very common that patients have celiac disease and they have food allergies or food intolerances and they have irritable bowel syndrome at the same time. The interesting thing about this drug is that um, with our mechanism of action that, for example, irritable bowel syndrome is known now that the interaction between the microbiome and certain mast cells in the bowel wall that are co-located with nerve endings um, is entertaining, for example, IBSD 
yes, the diarrhea predominant uh, IBS form. And uh, it, it, by, for example, healing the bowel wall and regenerating the bowel wall and strengthening uh, the barrier function, we may address um, the IBS portion or a food intolerance portion as well. This is, of course, need to be investigated. We haven't investigated. We have investigated strictly celiac disease patients yet, but I think there's at least mechanistically, we can see that it may help for, um, for example, the IBS portion or or the the food intolerance uh, portion for those patients as well. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting because if you get approval for a, a more obvious condition like celiac, um, and as we do uh, endoscopy and get biopsies, and it doesn't show classic celiac, you know, it doesn't show villus blunting, but it shows in chronic inflammation changes uh -huh. in the bowel. Will will we try this medication for those patients who have slightly abnormal biopsies and chronic gastrointestinal symptoms? Uh, the FDA may may FDA may have some uh, input on that, but um, I I imagine we'll we'll try it, particularly if you're going to tell us that this drug is incredibly safe. Yeah, I think of course we have tested it so far only in um, in less than 200 human subjects and patients. So we need to really increase our safety database to learn more about the drug. But so far, we have not seen any safety signal here in our trials a, that would say this is a systematic adverse events that's happening or a, a systematic um, laboratory change that's happening. And we are very um, pleased with the safety profile that we've seen so far in these trials and, and hope that this continues because I think especially for a lifelong treatment like for celiac disease, it would be important to have a good safety profile. Well, this sounds like great uh, investigation. Um, obviously, you, you said you started off and you, you got into, uh, you wanted to do medical technology. You didn't want to be a clinician. Any advice for, we have a lot of younger listeners, people earlier in their careers who may not be completely thrilled uh, with the idea of being a clinician forever. Any advice uh, to people who might want to follow this path? Uh, uh, I'm not sure whether I... I can give life advice, but um, I think the one thing I remember that um, helped me back a little bit at the beginning of my career to really do what I should do, and and it's really in my in my blood, and is really I think important to me was to realize when you're in the wrong place, and it doesn't mean that necessarily being a clinician or not being a clinician is is what really I, I think you're struggling with. Even when I was a scientist and worked on the science part or thought I worked on the science part, it was important for me to realize that in what setting you are, in a smaller team, in bigger companies, what's important to you um, is more that you're able to be creative and work in smaller teams where you can really influence the outcome or be a contributor or is uh, more important to you that you have a stable environment. And I have seen different people have different preferences but you have to be honest with yourself and say what is important to you and I remember that I struggled for the first years of my career to really find that environment and once I found it it was kind of a light bulb went off and I said I'm in the right setting now I'm being happy and that's what everybody probably has to go through at the beginning of of his or her career and and figure that out and that just makes you happy at the end. Well, I think that's generally good good advice. It's very similar to 
advice I give my children, and none of them are interested in healthcare. <laughs> um, but but it's still about finding your happiness. That's for sure. Um, uh, one last thing. Can you tell us where we can find out more about Immunic and uh, progress maybe on this uh, medication? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the best source of information is probably our website, www.imux.com. Um, and uh, we update, of course, our website with, uh, with more information about this program or about other programs. Uh, when we do abstracts or, or presentations at scientific meetings, we always publish them on our website so that they are available at the same time that probably experts hear it. You can see it on our website. Well, that sounds great. Uh, Dr. Mueller, really uh, thank you for your time and thank you for joining Gastro Broadcast. I was thrilled to be your guest. I think this was wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Weinstein. Uh, I hope we get to meet sometime face-to-face. Yes, I hope so too. would be great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.